You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. This morning, uh, it's been wonderful as we've celebrated new members in the church. We hope that the Lord is working in your heart uh, to, to, to move you towards membership. We would love that. Uh, it's been a great morning already as we've worshiped and prayed and confessed together. Uh, but today is also a big Sunday because we're ending, ending our series in sec, well, First and Second Thessalonians. This is our last sermon in Second Thessalonians. So if you would take your Bible and find Second Thessalonians chapter 3, in just a few moments we'll be reading verses 16, 17, and 18. God has encouraged us and strengthened us and built us up and challenged us through these timely New Testament books. Uh, We have been encouraged in the truth of Christ's imminent return. We have been strengthened to stand firm in the face of opposition and resistance and adversity. We've been built up in the knowledge of God's continuing work among His people and through His people. And we have also been challenged how to live in the community of faith and what that means for our relationships and what that means for our brother or sister who maybe is struggling with sin in their life. The Apostle Paul ends his second letter with a powerful benediction. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. It's this powerful benediction. So I'll begin reading in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Be with you all. This is the Lord's word. This is what is commonly referred to as a benediction. Do you know what a benediction is? I don't want to assume that. I'd heard that word for years growing up in the church. And I didn't really know what it meant, but I knew if someone used the word benediction that the service was close to being over, so it picked up my ears quite a bit. Because usually the benediction comes at the end of the service. A benediction is a spoken or prayed blessing for others. It is an expression of one person's heart for another person, or for one person's heart, for a group, or for a church, or in this case, an expression of what was in Paul's heart for those believers in the ancient city of Thessalonica. It is an expression of a person's heart asking for God's favor and continued blessing on other people's lives. There is something powerful in a blessing or a prayer like this. Paul knows this, 
and he uses a benediction in almost every letter that he writes. If you were to go back and look, whether it's Romans or First and Second Corinthians or, or Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or even Timothy, there is almost always some form of benediction, some expression of a blessing that he is giving and pronouncing to the people or a prayer of blessing even. Those things could essentially be the same. There is something powerful in a blessing of others. There is something powerful in a benediction as we are looking at here. There's something effectual about a spoken, spoken benediction. There is power to bring in our words to bring comfort, to bring help, to bring inspiration, to bring focus maybe, or, or relief, and the list goes on and on. You know, this makes me think of Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Maybe you've heard that often. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. James talked about the power of the tongue to, to, to do good things and the power of the tongue to do bad things. What this means is that when we speak and align our words with the truth of God, we speak with power. And we can point people away from lies that would be leading to death and point them to truth that would be leading to life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue in that sense. What this does not mean, and what we are not saying, and what I'm not saying in the power of blessing people is this. It doesn't mean that our words have the ability in and of themselves to create life or death. Nor do our blessings or benedictions have power simply because we say them, simply because we're using words. We do not have creating abilities within us. That is reserved for God. And the only power that is in our words is when our words align with the truth of God. So when we're speaking something, He is the power behind it, not simply because we're using certain words. Some people, I think, would look at Proverbs and they look at other verses and they, they think that we can speak our good fortune into existence. If we'll just be positive and speak positive things and put out positive thoughts, positive things will come to us. That is absolutely not what the Word of God says and not what we're talking about here, whether in Proverbs or here at the end of 2 Thessalonians. What Paul understood and practiced is not that, Basically, that's just a variation of name it and claim it. Name what you want and claim it verbally. Paul could speak his benediction and pray this blessing because he knew it was God's desire for the people. Paul was not forcing God somehow to do something he didn't want to do. He was agreeing with what he knew God actually wanted and was going to do. That's why his words carry power. So said another way, the blessings we speak must come from the Word of God by the Spirit of God as we speak these things. So just in the way of, at this point, of an introduction, and before we actually look at the actual benediction and the blessing that he gives, I just want to make this point, I think it's important, that we would learn to speak benedictions of blessings on others according to the truth of God in His Word, and by His Spirit. 
I think that there is so much room in the body of Christ if we would learn to bless each other and speak the words and the scriptures that's filled with so many benedictions, so many blessings that we could speak to each other, to encourage each other, to build each other up, that really will bring us into contact with the Lord, that will open us up to who he is. And I think that's what Paul is doing. This, this, sometimes I think people see this kind of as a throwaway. Well, this is just what you do at the end, like we would do maybe when we used to write letters and we'd say yours truly or, or whatever at the end. He's, this, is, this means something. He's saying something specific to these people and by implication to us today. I would love to just, and as I studied this this week, I just became uh, acutely aware of the power of a benediction for people. And blessing people according to the word and will of the Lord. And the power that that brings because it elicits or it, or it brings forth or evokes faith in a person and encourages a person. So I would just, as we go through this, just open your heart and say, Lord, teach me. What does this mean? How, do you, how can I speak blessings that are faithful to the word? Not that we create again. We're not creating realities with our word. We are just submitting our words to the Lord and to the truth of his word. So Paul richly blessed these believers in Thessalonica. And I think he leaves for us an example of the power of speaking a blessing. So from this benediction, we are given three comforting and orienting truths. Three truths that comfort our soul and help us orient ourselves to what is true. So let's look at these. Number one, the essence of Christ's peace, verse 16. The essence of Christ's peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. If you just want to bless people with that, that would be good. Paul ends his letter by expressing his desire that the Lord give them peace. The Lord who is peace, that he will give them peace. Now, this benediction is actually a little bit unusual from, Paul, uh, from Paul's usual, um, from what he, he normally says. Because here, when he assigns peace, he assigns it to the Lord. In most of his benedictions, he assigns peace to God. That the God of peace be with you, or that, the, that, that God bring peace into your life. Now may the God of peace, that's what he actually says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace... But here he assigns peace to Jesus, the Lord. Now, we know the Father, we know the Son, we know the Spirit are all involved in the peace that we receive and experience. But Paul is making sure they know that the Lord himself is the one giving them peace. You see, if you remember what we've covered, and just as a way of making sure we're on the same page, that there were those in the church who, who had come in and said, hey, the Lord came and you missed him. And it stirred up all kinds of, 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 of concern and, and discord, and they weren't sure what was going. They, were, they had given up everything to follow Christ, and, and now he came and they missed him, and they didn't know what to do with that. And so Paul was trying to instruct them that the Lord, they hadn't missed the Lord, that he is still coming. Okay, So when he gets to the end of this letter... He's basically saying that the very one that they were misinformed about 
the very one that they were misinformed that he had returned and they had missed, the very one that they were afraid that had already come and left them, that that very person, the Lord of peace himself, was the one providing them peace. He was trying to address again the concern of their heart. And Paul is adding more assurance to what he already taught them concerning Christ and his return. Christ was active. Christ was working peace among them. And this peace was pervasive. It says at all times in every way. This wasn't a hit and miss peace. This wasn't a peace for one situation but not another. This wasn't a peace for certain people but not for other people. At all times, in every way. Just think again of the need for peace in the context of these Thessalonian believers. They were a church birthed out of opposition and persecution. They were a church, a young church that was surrounded by a hostile culture. They were a church that was struggling for correct doctrine. They were a church confused about Christ's return. They were a church having to deal with members who would not obey Christ, but continued in their idleness. They were a church whose people knew weakness and faint-heartedness. The world in which they were living was pressing them. So Paul's benediction, his blessing here, was, was pretty huge. Peace was essential for them. And not just for them, it is essential for all God's people at all times, just like it's essential for us today. But I have a question for you. What is peace? Certainly, there is a sense of peace that is an absence of war or an absence of turmoil or an absence of conflict, but is that all that it is? It's certainly part of it or an expression of it. Certainly there is a calmness and a confidence that is implied in peace, and I think there's also a corresponding joy and hope that must also come into play. But I don't think any of that captures the true essence of the peace of Christ. The New Testament peace is really grounded in the Old Testament sense of shalom. Shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word that is often translated as peace. But hear this. At the heart of the Old Testament concept of shalom is the idea of rightness and justice of making whole of restoring completely that is the essence of what Old Testament shalom was that the New Testament peace is founded and grounded in in other words peace occurs when things are as they ought to be Peace occurs when things are as they ought to be. When things are not as they ought to be, there is no true peace. 
Now, by ought to be, I don't mean what we think ought to be, or what we wish it would be, or what we want it to be. But rather, how things ought to be means how God created and tends for them to be. And there is a rightness and justice that is intrinsic to the peace of God that has to be there. This is what God's original creation was like. It was peace. Everything was as it should be. Everything was functioning as God created it to function. Everything operated operated according to how it should operate. There was only right for humanity. There was only good for humanity. There was complete wholeness. There was peace. And so God declared, if you remember from Genesis, when he looked at after he'd created everything, he looked at it and he said, this is very good. This is how I created it. And I created these things to operate in certain ways. And they're operating that way. This is so good. It was all as it ought to be. That is, until chapter 3. And if you read that and just sit down and read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 together, you get this, you get, you, in, in a way you really can't any other way, you get this sense of this beautiful, incredible, creating God, and then all of a sudden it's gone. Something happened. It wasn't gone completely, but it was different. Now things were not as they ought to be. It threw everything into, out of whack. So then the question is, so how does peace work in a world where often so little works and operates as it ought to? How is peace possible in a world where things are often not as they should be? Family, friends, this is what Christ came to do. He came to bring peace. True peace. To set what was not as it ought to be back to what it ought to be. Hear what Romans 5 says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, hear this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The relationship between God and humanity was not as it ought to be. Jesus came and made that relationship possible again. He put the relationship at peace through his death. His violent death brought about our peace with God. The peace that Christ came to restore when he came the first time was the peace between sinful men and women and a holy God. This is where Jesus sets right that relationship. This is where he makes things as they ought to be between God the Father and sinful people. He does this by removing our sin through his death on the cross. We have been justified by faith in Christ. Family, this is the center of our faith. Because we have been justified by Christ's atoning work... We're at peace with God. And no other way are we at peace with God. And once that relationship is set right, it's not perfect. 
as it will be one day, but it, it, it is in that process. And once that relationship is as it ought to be, and that, that peace begins to work itself out into our thinking, that peace begins to work itself out into our feelings and desires, into our motivations and our attitudes, and it works even further into our actions and behaviors and conversations and relationships and decisions. The peace that Paul wants for those believers and for us today is the peace with God. And that changes us and it changes our reaction and response to everything that's happening around us that is not at peace yet. Certainly, it would be great if God granted us all peaceful lives in harmonious settings with stress-free jobs and relationships, that would be wonderful. But clearly, that is not the peace that Paul is talking about. He's not pointing to an external peace, not yet. He has addressed the struggles and difficulties of following Christ, both in his letters to Thessalonica, as well as his other letters in the New Testament. And the rest of the New Testament, really all of Scripture, testifies to this. There is no adverse free life. I remember when Terry and I were first married, we were part of a church, and the pastor was, we, was, was doing a series about the, the classroom of adversity. And he made this point, and it's always stuck with me. There are three kinds of Christians. There are those who are in adversity, those who are coming out of adversity, and those who are going into adversity. Adversity describes life now. And how do we reconcile again God's peace with this? Paul was very clear that there are struggles in our lives. He himself had endured sufferings and beatings and hardships and ridicule. And he makes this statement, just one part of adversity, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. One day, Jesus is going to come back, physically and personally, to the earth a second time. And he will establish peace, not just in the hearts of his people, but peace around his people. He will make everything new, meaning everything will again be as he wants it to be. It will all be as it ought to be again. Everything will function as it ought to function and go towards what he wants it to go towards. But for now... The peace of Christ provides us calm and confidence. No matter what is happening around us, we are right with God. We are at peace with the only one that matters. Family and friends, you got to let that work itself out into your thoughts and into your emotions. Because there's all kinds of things that want to take its place. When we are at peace with God, the ripple effects just keep going out. It just keeps changing every part of us when we truly understand that peace. We are right where it matters most. Things are as they ought to be with God, not because we made them that way or keep them that way, but because Christ made it that way and He keeps it that way.
This is why Sunday after Sunday, in song after song, prayer after prayer, conversation after conversation, we speak the gospel because we want you to know where real peace is found. The work of Christ for us that brings us peace with God. This is to orient our lives. That we are to orient our lives to that work and be filled with the peace of God. The peace where God is increasingly making our heart as it ought to be. A heart that loves Him, desires Him, serves Him, worships Him. This is the peace that is increasingly taking hold in our hearts and minds. I love how Spurgeon captured this for us in his sermon. He had a sermon actually on this text. It's called The Jewel of Peace. The peace, and he begins, the peace of this text is a gem with many facets. But in considering its many-sidedness, we must remember that its main bearing is toward God. The deepest, best, and most worthy peace of the soul is its rest towards the Lord God Himself. If you'd put up the rest of that quote. I want you to see the rest, read the rest of it. We are no longer afraid of God. The sin which divided us from Him is, bloated out, is blotted out and the distance which it created has ceased to be. The atonement has worked perfect reconciliation and established everlasting peace. The terrors of God's law are effectually removed from us, and instead thereof we feel the drawings of His love. We are brought nigh by the atoning sacrifice, and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that all His thoughts to us are thoughts of love. And we bless His name that our thoughts towards Him are no longer those of the slave towards a taskmaster master, or a criminal towards a judge, but those of a beloved child towards a kind and tender father. This is a great blessing. It is surely a choice delight for a man to know that whether he prospers or is afflicted, whether he lives or dies, there is nothing between God and him but perfect amity. For all that offends has been effectually put away. Amen? This church family is the peace of our lives. It is what Paul was blessing those believers with. It is what Paul would bless us with. And it's our spiritual birthright in Christ. The first comforting and orienting truth from this benediction is the essence of Christ's peace. Number two, the joy of Christ's presence is the second orienting or comforting and orienting truth. The joy of Christ's presence. Paul blesses them not just with the peace of the Lord, but with the Lord Himself. Verse 16, the Lord be with you all. There is no substitute for the presence of Christ. His abiding promise is His abiding presence with us. This is our confidence from, from Matthew 28. I will be with you always to the end of the age. He is always with us. We may not always be aware of it. We may not always be sensitive. But there is never a moment in your life when the Lord is not with you. And Paul is just trying to bring that front and center. 
You didn't miss the Lord. He didn't come and you missed Him. He's with you. How powerful is that? You know, when Terry and I were dating, um, it got to a point where we were writing letters every day. This was before cell phones, before email, before anything digital. Uh, we would call each other often, but those were the days. There's something called a landline, for those of you who don't know about that. And you used to have to wait till after 10 p.m. at night, so when the rates lowered, so that you can make phone calls, long-distance phone calls. So we would have to wait till after 10, so we would talk often into the, to the small hours of the, the night. But I, I love those kinds. I love the letters that we were writing. We were writing at one time a letter every day. So I would send a letter and I would get a letter back that she was responding to something I wrote six days earlier. I had no idea what I wrote in that letter. So it was kind of, it got confusing at times, but it was wonderful because we were sharing our heart. We were sharing our thoughts. We were sharing just what's going on in our lives and who God is to us. And, and God knit our hearts together through that. I love those, those letters and I love the phone calls. But family, as great and necessary as the writing and the phone calls were, there was nothing actually like actually being with her. That's where the joy was. That's where, that's where it was wonderful. It made my heart happy to be around her. Now, just take that and multiply it infinitely more for Christ. About his presence with us. He is with us. He has left His Spirit, who is the active presence of Christ. He is the one who fills us. Does the Lord have angels that attend us? Most certainly. Is the Lord present in His people? Yes, what a huge blessing. Is the Lord speaking to us in His Word? Absolutely, but He Himself is with us too. The assurance, this assurance would have brought such hope and joy to those weary Thessalonians who thought they missed the Lord's return and were like, now what do we do? The world just keeps pressing in on us. Jesus doesn't send a representative. He shows up himself. Family, the Lord is with you if you're his child. Remember this yourself often. During the course of the day, remind each other, hey, you're not in this alone. God is not abandoned. You may not feel His presence, but the Lord is with you. And He will carry you and care for you and supply for you. That is the second comforting and orienting truth from this benediction. The third and final comforting and orienting truth is the reach of Christ's grace. Verse 18, the reach of of Christ's grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Actually, this letter started with grace. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, it says, grace to you. He begins with that blessing, and he's ending with grace. From first to last, it's grace. What greater work could we ask or want for ourselves or for others, then we and that they experience and are surrounded by the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you know what grace is? Sometimes we just we use these words, but we need, we need to be clear about what we're talking about when we speak about grace. Grace is the riches of God that come to us at Christ's expense. 
It is the riches of God. It is the blessings of God that come to us at the expense of our Savior Jesus Christ because He stood in our place and took our sin on the cross. It is a word, listen, that describes all that God does for us out of love. There is nothing that God does in my life, there's nothing that God does in your life that is outside of His grace. It is the word that describes everything, every act, every interaction, every work that the Lord does in our life. It comes under grace, what He has done for us. And in that, listen, Grace is that, that we are receiving that riches, we're receiving the blessings, we're receiving these riches that we are unworthy of, we haven't earned, and that we will never merit. I don't know if you remember from some earlier, an earlier sermon, I talked about the relationship, and I think it will help us at this point, the relationship of grace to mercy. They're basically two sides of the same coin. Grace is what grace means what we get, we don't deserve. That's what grace is. Grace, what we get, we don't deserve. Mercy is the other side of that. What we deserve, we don't get. What we get, we don't deserve. That's grace. What we deserve, we don't get. That's mercy. So what do we get that we don't deserve? Well, here, let me name just a few quickly. Forgiveness of sin, filling of the Spirit, adoption as God's child. We don't deserve any of that. Haven't earned it, don't merit it, can't earn it. It's unearnable. What did we deserve that we didn't get? Judgment, condemnation, wrath, and hell. Grace and its sister mercy are what fills our lives as the people of God. It is the grace of our Lord that Paul blesses on these people. It is grace that saves us. It is grace that keeps us. It is grace that motivates us. It is grace that will bring us home. And it can take a while, family, for, for the full extent and reach of grace to sink in. But there is no part of the Christian life that is absent God's grace. There is no part of following Christ that is possible apart from God's grace. There is no good work or good intention in us that is not motivated or generated by God's grace. There is no good thing in our whole life that is apart from the grace of God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father. This is the reach of grace. From the first to the last, and every point in between, it is grace. And therefore, there is no reason to boast. There is no reason to brag. There is no reason to get full of ourselves. We didn't generate this. We are not worthy of it. Yet it's given to us freely and abundantly. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer to that is everything we have. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you take credit for what God is basically doing in your life? Christ has worked all these things for us. The Spirit works all things in us. We enjoy and live in the benefits of their work, and God receives all the glory. That's how this works. In eternity, we will not be celebrating our work, 
but the work of Christ for us. We will not point to our achievements, but to the glorious salvation that Christ has achieved for us. We praise His work that made godly life possible and godly life enjoyable. It is all His work, and we just celebrate that and cooperate with what He's doing in us. Notice something that Paul says here. We're, we're pretty close to being done. Paul says here, grace for all. He also said something similar about the presence of the Lord, that the Lord would be with them all. I think this is this, this all, this grace for all, the Lord be with you all, is a redemptive, caring expression. Paul is including those that he, in just a few verses earlier, was talking about practicing church discipline on. Yet here he is in this caring, redemptive expression, said, hey, the Lord be with you all, not just, not just the ones that aren't in this sin, but the Lord be, God's grace is to you all, wherever we are, wherever we're struggling as his people. Our sin doesn't limit or throttle the presence and grace of the Lord in our lives. He works mightily. To his people, the Lord is always there, and God is always working grace in them and through them. Philippians 1, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to its completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Three truths to comfort and orient us. The essence of Christ's peace, the joy of Christ's presence, and the reach of Christ's grace. We come to communion knowing the peace that was won for us. We come knowing Christ's presence is with us. And we come experiencing the ever-reaching grace of Christ for us. All that is pictured for us in communion, and it's refreshed in our hearts by the Spirit of God. Let's pray.